Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Schechter. The poet William Blake talked about art that was seeing the world in a grain of sand. I suppose that what he really meant was the ability to move in so tightly on something that we get inside of it, that we can construct an almost fourth dimension through which to view the world and our experiences in it. In a way, that's what my guest, New Yorker staff writer, author, and Pulitzer Prize winner William Finnegan has done with surfing. Living the surfing life alongside the literary life and writing about surfing for many years, Finnegan has reached the apogee of that effort in his autobiography, Barbarian Day. The book won the Pulitzer Prize for biography. It's just out in paperback, and it is my pleasure to welcome William Finnegan to the program to talk about Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, glad to be here, Jack. It's great to have you here. What is it about surfing that seems to inspire people to want to write about it? In many cases over the years, some of it has not been uh, as fantastic as yours, but people do seem to want to write about surfing. What is that about? Well, it's such a sort of private experience. Um, I mean, there are other people out in the water when you surf, but you might be surfing with friends. Um, but it's just in the nature of the thing, that it, it, it's sort of you in the ocean and, and your thoughts. And I think over time, I think a lot of people wish they could communicate what this is they're doing all the time. And, and you know, the reason they're uh, dashing out of work and, and leaving, leaving everybody hanging on land. Um, and it, it's, uh, it's, it's such a sort of world unto itself that, that you do want to be able to communicate it to people who don't serve. Surfers themselves can... I mean, among themselves, can can talk endlessly and, and feel quite satisfied with uh, getting across what what goes on. But it's all in you know the sort of language of the tribe, and and to sort of step outside and tell other people is a, is another project entirely. When you're writing, whether it's Barbarian Days or some of the other uh, wonderful pieces you've written about surfing, are you thinking about it being read by surfers or non-surfers? Well, um, I've actually only done couple of things, maybe a few at this point. I mean, I'm mainly a political journalist. Right. I've, I've been writing about politics and very broadly defined for um, a long time, mainly for The New Yorker, but also some books. Um, but I have done a few pieces you write about surfing, and um, except for maybe a little series I did when I was quite young and bumming around for an Australian magazine, did with a friend, um, that was for surfers. And then one other piece for Surfer Magazine that I could think of. Um, I've written for general readers uh, this book very much and, and a, a big profile of a surfer in San Francisco that I did in the 90s. Um, uh, those were very much for, you know, those were for New Yorker readers or, or for general book buyers. And, and it's a completely different perspective, different language, different job to, to write about surfing for non-surfers. What's different about it? What's the mindset that's different? Well, just for a start, there's, there's all the sort of technical jargon, the, the, the sort of lingo of surfing that, that um, is opaque to anybody on the outside. So there's all that. Um, and in Barbarian Days, I make an effort to kind of slip in little tutorials and the basic exposition and not a glossary, but, you know, so that to get readers oriented how waves are uh, generated and, and the terms we use to describe them and, and surfing, um, try to slip that in gently among a, you know, in, in the midst of a story about being a kid in Honolulu on, on land that, that's, that's, I hope, got a lot of um, uh, bite and, and color. And, and so that by the second or third chapter, 
non-surfing readers are uh, are acclimated and, and kind of know their way around and can stay oriented in a in a surfing scene uh, and feel what's what's at stake. So there's that that basic problem, and then there's as you say the mindset. Um, you know how one one thinks about um, spending so much time in this utterly useless <laughs> pursuit of waves, um, and and to convey what it is that might 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 compel uh, one so continuously over in my case you know fifty years, um, and that's that's a sort of larger job and involves you know really. Um, Evoking the the shape of one's life and the feel of it, um, and a lot of people have read this book and said, "Oh, this book's not about surfing; it's about you know love or obsession or men or something." I love hearing that, of course, but um, it's really pretty much about surfing. Are there other endeavors, other sports, other things, you know, golf even that that you think are analogous? in terms of, of the obsession and their ability to be about more than they're about, essentially. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, people often say to me, oh, this is just like golf. <laughs> right. They read this book and I say, mm, I can see what they're talking about, the kind of obsessiveness and, and you know, I did it right yesterday, why can't I do it right today, that kind of thing. Um, and, and just the way the grip it holds on you and being out in the uh, out in the weather. Um, but really, I mean, the ocean is a, um, pretty intense environment, especially when the waves are intense. Um, sort of what we're looking for, which is, which is different from a golf course and, and most of the things you can do, which isn't to say that surfing is the particularly dangerous. I mean, um, lots of sports are, or, or kind of outdoor, uh, activities, you know, backcountry skiing and, and whitewater kayaking seem to be quite a bit more dangerous. Um, but there's lots of analogies to, to any, any obsession, any, any kind of, you know, gripping enchantment like, like surfing ends up being for most of the people who do it. Right. There seems to be something about surfing. It's not to say that these other things aren't, but something about surfing, particularly as you tell it, even within the context of your own experience, that is kind of a way of life that goes along with it. Yeah, it's hard to surf without being kind of deeply involved with the ocean. I mean, always aware of what the ocean near you, especially, and, and even more widely if you're free to travel, knowing uh, what it's doing at any given time. You know, when the swell is likely to pick up, from what direction, in what conditions, what the wind will be doing, what the uh, tide, I mean, all these variables need to sort of line up for the waves to be good. Um, living in New York, as I do, and surfing around here, it gets quite good on Long Island and, and the Jersey Shore. Um, you, it, Especially in the winter, unfortunately, when it's freezing. Um, but you have to really, the window of good waves is usually pretty small, and so you have to really be paying attention all the time for that, to know when that moment is that you can, you know, abandon your desk, <laughs> making excuses, um, and, and dash off, catch some good waves. And um, so that thing, just to begin with, that, that sort of involvement with like that always feeling, knowing, and being able to forecast, and, and it's much easier now with online surf forecasting. I hardly know how we did it before without computers, without the Internet. Um, but um, you need to be quite deeply attuned uh, to what the ocean's up to. And as I say, there are people who... Um, 
either have the freedom and money or or, or pro surfers, um, and and they're looking at a world map, watching all the time for you know deep low pressure system. They're going to generate big waves, and where they're likely to show up when, and try to meet them there. Um, I do that on a small scale when I have the time. Right. You know, dash off to Puerto Rico, say, or Mexico when I see a great swell coming, and I can get away. And when you were younger, you talk about chasing waves essentially all over the world. Yeah, I when uh, I was in my 20s, I finished grad school. I'd saved a bit of money working in California on the railroad. Um, and I just set off on this trip with my friend Brian DeSalvatore, also a writer and surfer, um, that in some weird way felt kind of mandatory. Um, you probably remember that um, documentary from the 60s, Endless Summer, right. um, this sort of iconic surf movie um, that uh, is about these guys traveling around the world looking for waves. And it was actually kind of contrived. Wasn't a, was, they weren't real guys who decided to go look for waves. It was a filmmaker who hired these guys who were great surfers to go with him and, and you know, be the surfers in his movie. And, and it was really funny. And it was a kind of crossover hit, actually, that movie. It's one of the very few depictions of surfing that have meant much to uh, mainstream audiences. Anyway, that movie was just, I was 10 or 11 when it came out, and it just completely warped my career goals. And those of a lot of other uh, surfers <laughs> I knew where you just felt like, well, I have to do that. When I get to it, I have to do that. And at a certain point in my life, I I got to that point and, and set off with Brian. And um, I ended up being gone nearly four years, um, most of my 20s, I was chasing waves. And that was in the South Pacific and Southeast Asia, Australia, Southern Africa, um, you know, long sort of Southern Hemispheric trip. You mentioned earlier that, that primarily you were a political journalist. You've written about conflicts and politics throughout the world. Is there a nexus between your writing about surfing, your thinking about surfing, your life surfing? To what extent does that play upon or impact other things that you write about in the work that you do? Uh, there's a, a kind of overlap. Um, people have sort of pointed out with this book that... Um, Having spent um, my formative years kind of bumming around and, and living in obscure places on very little money, um, you know, the developing world um, broadly, so to speak, um, I uh, was, when I eventually got very interested in politics, my last day job was as a, uh, I taught high school outside Cape Town, South Africa, um, in the bad old days of apartheid. I was teaching in a black high school and ended up students went out on strike against apartheid in education, it ended up being a very intense year um, and, and very, very political. And, and by the end of that year, I was kind of only interested in doing political journalism. So I made my way back to the U.S. and freelanced for a number of years. Um, and um, there was, and eventually joined the New Yorker in, in 87, and I've been there ever since. And But a lot of what I do is going to you know, strange places to Somalia or Sudan or, or Peru and trying to understand what's going on in um, a place that's completely new to me. And, and um, that's analogous broadly to, to surfing and chasing waves where you're showing up on islands and, and coasts where there may never have been a surfer before or in any case you're trying to find waves that haven't been found before and, and, and take pick up local cues and, and get to understand the local landscape for a different purpose, obviously looking for waves than for trying to understand, you know, power or what's going on in a place. But but there's a I was kind of ready to do that sort of work um after after years of, of, of chasing waves. 
And and then the, just the problem of understanding something that that's that's new and 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 follows some patterns that you're familiar with, but but it's it's always going to be a, a special case, and and it's important to get it right. Um, there's a there's a sort of broad analogy there, I think. I suppose the place where it comes together early on is with your surfing and your writing and, and your attitudes about uh, South Africa and apartheid in South Africa. Yeah, that was, a, um, as I say, a sort of a turning point for me. I was writing fiction until then. I'd written one, two, three unpublished novels, and, and um, I was um, kind of ready for something new, and, and, and South Africa presented that. I also, I mean, I really went there for the waves, um, not for the political experience. And, and it was just my job that, that led me into the anti-apartheid struggle. But um, I actually don't write much about the surf in South Africa, although it was really good, uh, and was the highlight, by the way, the scene for the highlight of, of Endless Summer, and there are some really great waves there. Um, but it wasn't a place where I had a, a boon companion, I mean, somebody I really explored with. I didn't. I mean, I surfed with local guys that I met there, but, but, but nobody... Um, who loomed very large in my life or my mind, and 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 this book is kind of structured around friendships. You know, the the, the person I was chasing waves with, and stuff going on between us, and and what what he always seems to be a guy um, was like, and uh, and and what happened, and and South Africa didn't have that that dimension, and 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 so I I don't write much about surf in South Africa. Okay. You started surfing. You came to surfing as a child, essentially. Talk a little bit about that, but also, is it possible, and have you run across people that have come to surfing later in life that didn't do it, that weren't indoctrinated as kids? I think people do um, take up surfing as adults. Um, it's really difficult. I mean, it's a hard thing to learn, um, both how to read the ocean, which is, is the main thing. You need to spend a lot of time in the water, um, usually as a kid. You know, body surfing, fooling around, um, getting to understand how waves break, um, but also physically, athletically, it's a, it's a hard um, skill. I mean, to to get the sort of nerve memory to you know catch waves and pop up on a board, especially a short board, a small board, a high performance board, um, and um, so I think it's really, really hard to learn as an adult. I I learned young, and for a long time had the attitude that you couldn't learn over the age of about fourteen. You just couldn't. Well, who has the time? I mean, it takes thousands of hours to become even competent. It's pretty much only kids that have that much time to waste. Um, but then I've, I have known a few people who've taken it up as adults and have become competent surfers. Um, they have to really vote themselves to it. It's, it's um, much harder to learn than it looks. And, and, and you can learn a kind of um, very basic um, competence, I think, on, usually on a, on a long board, a big heavy board. Um, uh, a more rudimentary kind of surfing and, and more um, beginner waves. And and that's, I think, really fun, and, and, and people take that up quite late. But it's more of a fitness thing, less of a... Uh, and, and being out on the ocean rather than a, a kind of deep involvement with, with intense waves. Was there a tipping point for you, a point that you realized that surfing was going to be more in your life than just fooling around on water, that this was going to be something important? Um, yes and no. I mean, it. it uh, looking back at this long life of surfing, um, I see real um, sort of points of inflection there where 
um, for instance, when I was 13 and we were living in Hawaii, um, I, I've been raised Roman Catholic and my parents, I got confirmed at, at around that age as, as you do. And my parents gave me the choice of whether to keep going to mass. I was now an adult in the eyes of the church. And, and so I said, okay, then I won't go. And I was the oldest of four and the rest of the family kept, you know, going to mass on Sunday mornings and I would go surfing and, and, um, I was surfing all the time anyway, but it was, and I realized looking back that that was really, I was a bit lost, uh, spiritually with that, you know, just sort of abruptly leaving the church. I never thought I'd going to get that chance and, and, and surfing very much filled the vacuum. And, um, so there was that kind of point. And then various points at which I was, I thought, you know, turning away from surfing now, I'm just, I'm serious about my work. I can't be spending all my time chasing waves and, and, and have a kind of extended, uh, debate with guys I surf with about, you know, how important it was and, and whether it was possible to quit. And, and I never have managed to quit. And, and I, you know, slacked off at points. Like when I first moved to New York, I didn't realize there were good waves around here. And um, then I realized there were, and then I, I, I found this, these great waves on a Portuguese island called Madeira with another guy from, from Long Island. And, and we started going there every winter and really rejuvenated my surfing. So it's been, there's been a number of sort of turning points. And after all of them, I, I've stuck with surfing. I want to come back to the friendship aspect of it that you were talking about, because somehow as you talk about that, it's all, it's another one of those things that brings up the analogy of golf somehow. And, and this camaraderie that is part of the exercise. Yeah, it is a big part of it. I, I remember John Updike used to write about golf as parallel play, you know, like, like kids in the sandbox or like, might be too young to play with each other, but they're sitting there playing next to each other. And, and, and he was, you know, a great um, celebrator of, of golf. Um, and, and the, what is it, the 19th hole when you're, you know, back in the clubhouse having a beer and, and, um, and any surfer could relate to these sort of descriptions of what it's like to be with people through these, um, you know, these moments of, of kind of uh, frustration, triumph, you know, adversity, the wind's blowing, I suppose, or it rains or, or a hole is tough in golf and, and in surfing. There's, there's plenty of analogies when, when the wind goes bad or the waves um, catch you inside and, and, and you're happy to get back to shore together. Um, and, uh, in fact, I, there was a review of this book in Sports Illustrated, um, that, um, said, oh, this guy is like, it's like reading, where did he put it, um, reading this guy on water and waves is like reading Hemingway on bullfighting, which is awfully nice, and William <laughs> Burroughs on controlled substances, which was also nice, <laughs> and Updike on, Updike on adultery, and I wanted to say, how about Updike on golf, you know? Of course, the thing that's also different with surfing is that there's a greater degree of danger involved. I mean, your life is on the line in some instances. Yeah, in some instances. it's it's um, uh, Some of the more memorable moments of my surfing life have been in bigger waves and, and, and more um, sort of perilous spots. Um, but the great majority of surfing it takes place in relatively mellow waves and, and, and um, not life-threatening circumstances by any stretch. And even then, I'm big wave surfing is a, almost another sport. I mean, it's I'm not a big wave surfer. There's a kind of small, relatively very small um, sort of um, elite group of, of 
people who to chase giant giant waves around the world. And they occur pretty rarely and only in very um, very specific places. And uh, you need to be there at the moment and, and then have the strange nervous system that will allow you to do it because they're, they're truly terrifying, really big waves. What's the longest period of time you've gone without surfing? Uh, I think I might have gone six months at some point. I mean, I lived in Europe a couple times when I was young before I knew there were waves in Europe and um, probably never a year, but... Um, you know, quite a few months. I lived in Montana for three winters, um, but always kind of darted back to the coast, California, maybe six, eight months. Um, but um, then in the last, since I came, I don't know, it's probably in the last 30 years, I've certainly never gone six months without serving. Is it kind of withdrawal that I suppose sets in? Yeah. And when I was younger, I didn't much think about it. It was just this thing I did. I'd grown up doing it and, and, and I didn't think, oh, my God, it's been six months. You know, I just would have had the kind of instinct to try to find waves after a while. I'd feel, as I say, I lived in Montana, and I started to feel quite surf-starved without necessarily putting a name to it. But I noticed in my journals, you know, rush to the coast, God, I got in the water, you know. Um, so I was feeling it, but not particularly thinking about it. You write about, of course, and we've touched on the whole the male bonding aspect of all this. Is surfing different, do you think, for women? Is the experience different? Is it is it just a different attitude that they bring to it? I don't know. It's a good question because I feel like I don't know anything about women's experience of surfing. I mean, I know a few women to surf, and I've surfed with women a few times, and uh, more than a few. Um, but never with there's some now extremely good women surfers. I mean, um, way better than most men. And um, and I actually shared a stage in Hawaii a few weeks ago with the world champion of women's surfing, Chris Moore, whom I'm in awe of. I've never surfed with her, but I've watched plenty of videos of her. Um, and stylistically, that's a debate. You know, is she surfed like a guy, or, or is there a different, you know, sort of feminine version of, of high-performance surfing? And I don't really see that distinction. Um, I mean, as women get better and better, like Carissa um, surfs as well as anybody, and very much like the top male surfers. But the the real question to me is about um, the sort of social dynamics in the lineup um, as you're trying to get waves. I mean, it's lots of very primitive competition. You know, it's 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 real. Um, you know, kind of a dominant submission dance in the water. Who surfs better? Who's more intimidating? Who's more aggressive? And and who's going to get the waves? And I think about how women must compete within that. As I say, I haven't surfed much at all with, with, with really accomplished women surfers um, who have to, you know, be the alpha member of that pack if they're going to get any waves. And Carissa, for instance, you know, will go out with 40 guys and, and, and dominate. And I just wonder what that's like to, for all these, you know, very fit, proud guys who think <laughs> they surf well. Here's this girl surfing rings around them. And I'd be interested to know more. You mentioned watching surfing. Does surfing exist much as a spectator sport? Not really. I mean, there are a few places where you can watch surfing and it's not boring. Um, the great majority of surf spots are incredibly boring for non-surfers to you know, turn up and watch. The waves aren't that good and long, long pauses, lulls, surfer calls, surfers call them between waves. and um, There's not much to see, but there's the occasional, um, I mean, famously, uh, the Bonsai Pipeline on the north shore of Oahu in Hawaii on certain winter swells. You can stand on the beach and it's breaks quite close to shore, and you can really see the action. 
Um, there are a couple of places you can go out by boat, um, one in Fiji, a place I've surfed a lot, known as Cloud Break, and you can be sort of in the channel up close watching quite dramatic, beautiful waves. There's another one, Tahiti, that I've never visited, known as Chopu, that's um, possibly the heaviest wave in the world, and, and these boats get really close to it. I don't know why people aren't, you know, dying in the channel as these boats almost get sucked over in these giant waves, and people trying to take pictures of surfers were deep in these enormous barrels. and uh, So there are a few places where it can be a spectator sport, but for the great majority of surf spots, there's there's very little to see. And and, and I think that's been one of the reasons that um, for all the commercialization of surfing and you know, all the ads you see full of surfers and surf imagery, um, it doesn't really take off as a sport because there's, there's not much to watch. Even, even the top surfers in good ways can be pretty boring. Where in the world haven't you surfed that, that you still want to? Well, Tahiti. Uh, I, mean, I don't know that I want to surf that place. Chopu has way <laughs> over my head, I think. Um, I mean, it scares me even to watch the video, so I think not. Um, but ah, there's some ways in Chile, um, South America, that I'd very much like to surf. Um, there's a spot in the Western Pacific um, that I had my eye on. Unfortunately, other people have learned about it. It looks pretty crowded now. This is in the, um, is it in the Marshall Islands? No, no, it's it's in Micronesia anyway. Um, a, a wonderful looking right. Uh, yeah, you go left and right. And a lot of the great ways in the world are lefts. Unfortunately, that's on my back end. So I'm always looking for great rights. Uh, most of the, the great ways I've either surfed, um, I was shocked once in the early 80s to pick up a surf magazine and see a list of um, what the editors consider the top ten waves in the world. Looking down the list, I realized I had surfed nine of them. Um, some of them, you know, lived there just just to surf that wave. And I thought, my God, if there's any question about how I'm spending my life, this pretty well answers it. <laughs> um, and the, the last spot was someplace in Peru that I hadn't heard of. But um, there's there's that, and um, and then there's the fact that that, that great waves are um, usually they get known and they get photographed, and people, you know go to the ends of the earth for those waves, and they get really crowded. So there's some great-looking waves in various parts of Indonesia that used to be uncrowded, but now it's so crowded that it's probably not worth my while to, to you know, drag myself there. William Finnegan, his Pulitzer Prize-winning book is Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life. It's just out in paperback from Penguin. Bill, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Jeff. It's been thank a pleasure. You. Thank you.